ourselves on. All right, so let, let's go ahead and get started, folks. Um, so welcome to the, uh, what month are we? October AIDS seminar. Um, and uh, today we have uh, Dr. Douglas Bruce, who was here once before. He reminds me many, many years ago. <laughs> I'm not sure. Can't be that. <laughs> but a number of years ago. Uh, here today to um, speak to us. Uh, title is Infectious Diseases and Addiction in 2014, but revolving around HIV, Hep C, uh, and addiction. Um, Dr. Bruce um, started his education uh, in uh, Texas uh, and completed it or moved from Texas to Yale in 2000 and has been uh, in and around New Haven since 2000. Uh, uh, his interests have been around, largely around operations research uh, type work uh, to do with uh, addiction and HIV hepatitis C. Uh, currently is associate professor at Yale, the medical director for a multicultural ambulatory addiction service in New Haven, as well as a uh, rehab center in New Haven. I don't know if we'll hear more about that uh, in the talk connected to it. And um, I think with that, I will hand off to Dr. Bruce to uh, speak to us on HIV-FC addiction. I don't know if the screen's going to come back. It's temperamental. And so it may or may not return. But oh, so. I'm sorry. I'm so bad at this. Richard always tells me there, are no there is no support for today's presentation. That's why there's only one screen. <laughs> I guess there's no conflict. <laughs> so, uh, as mentioned, I'm going to be talking about addiction. I'm uh, in the ID section at Yale and came to addiction because my HIV hep C patients were drug users. And so I had to do something about their addiction in order to do something about their viral diseases. So this is from the Montana Meth Project. Meth is for methamphetamines in this case. And uh, so my friends and I share everything. Now we share hepatitis and HIV. And so this is something that certainly I think is all very concerning to us. So we know that uh, drug use remains a big problem globally. I'm going to give an example of drug problems in Africa, actually, which are growing uh, in a little bit. We have lots of emerging HIV and hepatitis C problems globally. I'm sure many are aware of former states of the Soviet Union where it's rampant. We also have issues in Southeast Asia, China, South America even, and then growing epidemics in East Africa. So if we were to look at the world globally, this is uh, where injection drug use and uh, HIV overlap, and you'll see that uh, a lot of it's happening in the Russian, former Russian Federation. Ukraine is the purple dot there in Eastern Europe, which as we know, with the current conflicts in Ukraine, things have become more complicated. We used to have a clinic in Crimea, which provided methadone, HIV, TB integrated treatment, but when the Russian Federation adopted or annexed Crimea, they outlawed the program because methadone is illegal in the Russian Federation for the treatment of drug addiction. And so all of those patients weren't detoxed, their behaviors were criminalized, and they immediately lost access to treatment, which means they all went back to using drugs. So we know that HIV and hepatitis C, which is a log more infectious, track a lot with drug users. And one of that's through people who inject drugs, so obviously needle sharing. Some is through the impaired judgment, as we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, with drug intoxication. 
There are issues relative to disease progression and neurological complications that the drugs themselves can have upon the person with an infectious disease. So before we talk about the HIV hep C pieces, we should talk about the neurobiology of addiction. And so from an infectious disease perspective, right, when we talk about addiction, it means two things. One is that the behavior is reinforcing. And I mean by reinforcing neurobiologically, and we'll talk more about that. And the second is that there's a loss of control in limiting the intake of the substance. Right? If you can stop, you're not a drug addict. That doesn't mean you don't have a problem. But the hallmark of addiction is the loss of control. And that loss of control gets translated into behavioral issues. So one big question is, well, why do people ever do drugs in the first place? Right? I have never met anyone who said, you know, when I was 17, my life goal was to become a drug addict. Right? I've never met that person. I have met people who, at 17, tasted drugs for the first time and said, wow. I had a patient once who said, I did heroin when I was 17 in New York City, and I realized that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So why do some people do drugs? Well, some people are doing it to feel good. For most of my patients, it's to feel better. Something has happened in their lives, and they want to feel better. So for the 21-year-old woman that I was asking, when did you start using drugs? Why do drugs have value for you? She said, drugs help me forget. Well, what does a 21-year-old want to forget? Well, when she was 17 and started using drugs, she was raped. And those drugs have been her self-medication to forget her trauma. She wants to feel better. So one big issue is, okay, so lots of people do drugs. Some go on to become presidents of the United States. Some don't. And of those who don't, what is it about the drug exposure that leads them to become a drug addict? So Michael Brown, who you may know, who came up with this thing called LDL cholesterol, he and Joseph Goldstein. Michael Brown loved to throw the, this at us often when I was a medical student. And they said, everything is on this continuum. Everything in medicine is on this continuum, from biology to environment. So you might say, ah, but Down syndrome, that's purely genetic. Well, we know that maternal age impacts probability relative to having a Down syndrome child. So there is an environmental component, even in things that appear to be only genetically based. So my point is that everything falls in this continuum, and drug addiction is no different. Some people are genetically predisposed to becoming a drug addict. But just because you're predisposed to something doesn't mean you become it. Because why? Well, I could be genetically predisposed to being a heroin addict, but I've never tried heroin. So I can't become a heroin addict without some form of an exposure. So this is a study that Nora Volkow did many years ago. This was published in the 90s. And she took people who were not drug addicts, and she did something very clever. Right? So first, she imaged their brains. So this is a PET scan, and we're looking at the dopamine 2 receptor. Right? And so we have two example patients. The top patient has high dopamine receptor activity, lots of dopamine 2 receptors. The person on the uh, bottom portion there has lower dopamine concentration. So then she decided, let's give all of these guys Ritalin, right? because isn't that a good idea? And then let's ask them, how do they feel? So one proportion of people said, this feels great. I'm so glad I enrolled in the study, and I got paid to do this. This is awesome. Another group of people said, I don't like it. Well, when she looked at the concentration of dopamine receptors relative to people's perception, she found what? Well, she found that the people who liked it had lower dopamine. What does Ritalin do? Well, it makes that bottom brain look like that top brain, right? It gives you more dopamine. The people that already have enough dopamine, the people at the top, 
they experience Ritalin and it's dysphoric. I, I already got enough dopamine. I don't like the way this makes me feel. These are non-drug users exposed to a drug, two groups. One group liked it, another group didn't. Correlates to their biology, the neurobiology, what's inside their brains. So if we were to look a little bit more at the brain, we can see there's this thing called the, the NAC or nucleus accumbens here. Right? So this is involved in reward or salience. Right? The amygdala is your emotions, hippocampus right, is memory. And all of these things are hardwired in. So we know for drug users right, and adolescents, they're thinking a lot with their amygdala, their emotions. What makes me feel better? How do I feel in the moment? Right? Drug users don't think long term. They don't think about, well, if I don't take all of my antibiotics for endocarditis, that could be bad. They think about what? Right now, I feel horrible. Today, I feel bad. I want to feel better today. It's immediate gratification. Right? And so that's the other big problem is in the uh, prefrontal cortex, that PFC, right? which is not Popeye's fried chicken, which I did have that asked me once. Right? Some people do think about fried chicken in the front of their brains. But this is the prefrontal cortex, and it's inhibitory control. Right? And when does it fully develop? Right, in your mid to late 20s. We draft 18-year-olds. They don't have inhibitory control. You tell an 18-year-old in the military to take the hill, and he'll take the hill. You tell a 30-year-old to take the hill, and he'll say what? I could get shot. I am not going to take that hill. Right? He's got inhibitory control. He's thinking about consequences. Right? 17 to 18-year-olds are driving. Right? They don't think they have consequences. You mean if I drive really fast on a rainy day, steering with my knee while texting, that I could get into an accident? All my 17-year-old friends do that. It's lack of inhibitory control. Right? And it becomes important for us to understand this as a brain issue because it's not that drug users are stupid. Drug users aren't stupid. Right? They're wired differently. So let's look at that nucleus accumbens a little bit more. This is in rats, not people. Sometimes people get worried when they see food and sex and they think this was an experiment in people. It's not. This is an experiment in rats. And what's been done is they've taken a probe and they put it in the brain of the rat in the nucleus accumbens and they're looking at dopamine output. And so you'll see that we have a basal output at 100%. And when the rat eats food, it gets a neurobiological reward. We see that when the male rat gets together with the female rat, the male rat gets a neurobiological reward. Now, I hope this is all very intuitive to everyone, right? If you have food and sex hardwired into the, your brain as things that are important and necessary for survival, the species continues. But what happens when you throw into that mixed drugs? Well, remember, food and sex were at 200% and amphetamines are over 1,000%. So all of a sudden, we're introducing into the rat's brain Something that's tracking in the same pathway as food and sex, but it's more rewarding. It feels better than food and sex. If you've ever talked to a heroin addict about what heroin feels like, the heroin addict, who's being honest, will tend to talk in terms of a sexual orgasm. It's better than the best sex you've ever had, would be what the heroin addict would say. So... In my line of work, it's always been very difficult to get people to have safe sex, right? The joke was that men never want to wear condoms, so it's almost impossible to get people to have safe sex, right? So if I can't change a behavior that's less rewarding, how do I change behaviors that are more rewarding? 
Or let's take riding a bicycle, right? Everyone knows how to ride a bicycle. Uh, maybe, you're in New Hampshire, so maybe you rode your bicycle to work today. In Connecticut, people don't ride their bicycles, right? But people still ha remember how to ride a bicycle. I've yet to meet someone who finds riding a bicycle more pleasurable than sex. There may be that person out there, but I have not met that person. If we don't forget how to ride a bicycle, which is not very neurobiologically rewarding, right? We don't forget the bicycle. But it's not that pleasurable. What happens when we're trying to change a behavior that's intensely pleasurable, so pleasurable, it is worth any consequence you throw at me? Any consequence, right? Prison doesn't matter. HIV doesn't matter. Hepatitis C doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where that needle's from. I'll put it in my arm because of the neurobiological reward. So one of the big things we have is that drugs usurp the brain circuits and motivational priorities of the individual. Moving away from hardwired to survival and procreation to a different kind of survival, getting the drugs necessary to feel better. Which is why it shouldn't be surprising when the drug user has $10 and has an option to buy food or buy drugs, I'm going to buy drugs. Because all I'm worried about is the moment, remember. I'm not worried about whether or not my BMI is right. I'm not worried about whether or not I'm going to take my antibiotics. And I've been, you know, I've been taking risks for the last five years, sticking random needles in my arm. Do you think I'll take a risk on whether or not I take my protease inhibitor today? Or maybe I'll take part of the regimen today? Because right? isn't half better than nothing? So what are some of the environmental factors that contribute to drug use that are really important for our patients? Well, stress is very important. Physical and sexual abuse is a huge issue, especially globally. Remember, you don't have to be a victim of violence if you've witnessed violence. Right? That can cause PTSD. Peers who use drugs and drug availability all factor into creating an environment that contributes to addiction. Here's an example looking at monkeys. Right? So in the top one, you've got the individually housed monkey who becomes dominant. And on the bottom, you have the individual monkey who is then housed, but he's the subordinate monkey, right? He's not the top monkey. And you see that they've been introduced to cocaine, but when they're introduced together, the dominant individual's cocaine use goes down. Why? He's not as stressed out. He has a monkey to beat up on, right? But the monkey who gets beat, right, who's subordinate, is now more stressed out, and so self-medicates with more cocaine. <clears throat> When we look at uh, children, I had mentioned this earlier about prefrontal cortex development. You see this is uh, uh, the change in the brain, gray matter over time. But even in the 20s, all right, the brain's not fully developed. It's continuing to change. And drug use often begins when? In this time period, early on. People aren't typically becoming drug addicts in their 20s. Certainly in Connecticut, uh, kids get free access to Percocets, Vicodins in the middle school, high school time frame. You always want to introduce the drug during a time when that inhibitory control is low, when the kid's willing to take a risk. Because every 17-year-old thinks that they can drink alcohol or do a drug, but they won't become an addict. Right? Addicts are weak people. They're other people. They're not me. They're not my peer group. Right? Teens often, as we mentioned, drug users function more with the amygdala. They're relying upon emotions to make their decisions. It feels good. It feels right. That's why HIV therapy is so bad. It makes me feel bad. It must not be good for me. Whereas the person operating 
thinking more along uh, frontal cortex lines can understand that, well, the medicine makes me feel bad short term, but there is a long term benefit. So I want to adhere. So when we think about the brain, we think about the non-addicted brain, that control is the prefrontal cortex, and it's operating very strongly. So that whether we're having bad memories or the sanity we need to feel better, we can have a calculated response. I'm really stressed out. I have this big thing tomorrow. Well, I do know that I could consume five beers in an hour and I would no longer be stressed out. However, my prefrontal cortex tells me that's a really stupid thing to do because you'd feel good for a short period of time, you're going to feel rotten tomorrow, and you're going to fail in that big thing. So don't do it. But from the drug user's perspective, that memory is really intense, right? The history of trauma, the violence that someone's been engaged in, and that drives the need to feel better. I need to feel better. I don't care what happens. And the prefrontal cortex is saying, I don't know, that's a bad idea. I wouldn't eat all those Xanax with your methadone. It doesn't matter. I have to feel better. Oh, my goodness. My computer. There we go. All right, so let's look at an example of methadone. Methadone is the much maligned medication in the world. I'm sure probably everyone has a negative view of methadone. Hopefully not. Uh, I certainly had a negative view of methadone until I started working with heroin addicts. It's an amazing medication. So this is from the 1960s from Dole and Nicewander uh, and Mary Jean Creek. Dole is an endocrinologist at Rockefeller, and Nicewander was a psychiatrist to kind of the bebop generation of jazz artists. And heroin was the big drug, the big problem in the 1960s and 50s in New York City. And so they figured out over time a way to treat that, and it was with methadone. And you see here that there are these little ticks. This is the life of the heroin addict early on. Use heroin, feel higher euphoria. Over time, you've developed tolerance. You're not feeling high anymore. You're just trying to feel normal. You're just trying to avoid withdrawal. At some point, you're so desperate that you're like, I'm going to put everything I've got in one shot, and that's overdosing death. Right? Early on, we feel great. Later, we're trying to avoid feeling rotten. And this is a lot of risk. A whole lot of risk is happening in the time frame of avoiding illness. Right, we were out doing outreach in uh, New Haven and had a patient come up to me and to this outreach worker, and she was trying to solicit sex from the outreach worker. Right? So she said, I'll, I'll give you a blowjob for $10. He said, ma'am, you know, I'm with Yale University. I'm here to do outreach. $5. Right? Ma'am, I don't think you understand. I'm from Yale University. Right? And I'm standing there just watching what's happening. Right? He's like, $2. So then a car pulled up, she jumped in the car and rode off, and we weren't able to help her. She was in opiate withdrawal. She was ready to do anything to get a couple bucks because she needed her fix and she needed to feel better. So when I think of methadone, I can tell you about the pharmacology of methadone, right? It's a race mixed mixture, all really cool things. But what I find most helpful is this, right? It reduces injection drug use related to, uh, to opioids. It decreases the psychosocial and the medical morbidity. Increases access to and retention to HIV therapy, improves health status, and decreases criminal activity. How does methadone work in the brain? Well, the Thompson MRI, this is a PET scan. We're looking now at the opiate receptor, not the dopamine receptor. Right? And you can see there's this nice little area right here, the nucleus accumbens. 
right? That pleasure center in the brain, that thing that lights up in an orgasm, that thing that lights up when you eat the food, probably not lighting up when you ride that bicycle, but that's the thing lighting up. We see that top layer is when there's no opioid agonist given. Right? The next row down, bup 2 is when two milligrams of buprenorphine is given. You can see there's a dramatic change as we go down. And what are we doing? We're filling up the opiate receptor. We're parking cars in the parking lot. So what happens then when someone then uses heroin? Well, here's a similar curve that we did before, but the little M there is what? Methadone. So here's the patient who's taken methadone who feels normal. This is appropriately dosed methadone. Appropriately dosed methadone, you should not know the person's on methadone. The person who's nodding out and drooling is either getting too much methadone or is mixing other drugs with their methadone. Right? So the nurse I did clinic with on Friday, she's on methadone. She's functioning completely normal. She's got more energy than I do, and I'm a high-energy person. Right? So appropriately dosed methadone, you don't know the difference. So if this individual uses little H heroin, right? it's not Haldol, not vitamin H, different H. This heroin then is circulating, but where is it trying to go? It's trying to go to the opiate receptor in the brain, but we already filled up the parking lot. And so the opioid agonist, buprenorphine or methadone, acts as a narcotic blockade. And that becomes one of the big reasons that we provide these forms of treatment. Right? There's cross-tolerance. You were on the heroin. Now you're on methadone. You're not going to go into withdrawal. If you're on the heroin, now you're on methadone. You don't have the craving for opioids that you did and then the narcotic blockade that I've just been doing. So <clears throat> I'm going to show you a couple of slides from Don Desjardins that I think are also very helpful in framing the issue related to syringe exchange, which is also critically important in the public health approach to people with HIV. So um, this kind of summarizes it, which is basically that wide-scale distribution of clean syringes in New York City helped impact the HIV epidemic. So if we look at the increasing number of syringes that were exchanged in New York City, um, looking at from 1990 all the way up to 2002. Right? And then we lay over that HIV incidence and then HIV seroprevalence. We see that among drug users, as syringes were going out, and we're talking about millions of syringes annually, but this is a large volume of syringes, we see a dramatic change in HIV prevalence among patients. And now this is old hat to all of us, right? Because we know that clean syringes prevent HIV infection. Right? But clean syringes have always been an easier sell in the HIV prevention world than condoms. Drug users don't mind using a clean syringe because the high wasn't the needle. The high is the drug that's in the syringe. Condoms have always been a hard sell for my patients at least, right? Because a condom changes the perception of sex and people are in it for the feeling. So I don't know how easy or difficult syringe exchange is in uh, New Hampshire. It's certainly actually become more and more difficult in Connecticut. And as a result, we've been seeing an increase in the incidence of hepatitis C infections. Right? So we're seeing lots of young people with hepatitis C, um, and it's absolutely tragic and so easily preventable. And the cost of the syringe is much cheaper than uh, 12 weeks of sofosbuvir. But that's been very difficult for me to convince our public health department of that. So I also want to introduce a concept which some of you may be also uh, familiar with, and that is uh, the dead space in the syringe. So one of the issues that we have globally, and you have here, is the syringe that someone may use to inject also connotates 
a risk relative to infection, right? So if you have a low dead space syringe or a high dead space syringe, you have different concentrations left over of blood. And this is a huge issue that we face globally where many people are injecting with high dead space syringes. And if you look at the infectiousness, right? So here's the blood retained after rinsing a syringe by syringe type, right? So after the second rinse in a high dead space syringe, you still have this one microliter of uh, blood, which connotates this very, very high risk. So not only is syringe exchange important, but one of the things we found is that you never actually get enough syringes in circulation, especially in, say, a rural environment like Vermont and New Hampshire, where injections may be way out, and so people will share syringes. So if you are sharing syringes, you need to share a less infectious syringe. So it's not just a syringe, but it's the kind of syringe. So I want to give you two examples. One example is the failure to scale up and the current success in trying to do that, but I fear ultimate failure as well. I don't mean to be such a downer, but we know, we've known since uh, the early 90s that methadone is HIV prevention. Right? So this is a famous study that Dave Metzger did. He had two cohorts of people, one in methadone, one out of methadone. The people in methadone, right, 3.5% developed HIV and HIV. Right? This is in the early 90s. It's not like they were doing treatment as prevention for HIV back then. 22% right? of the people out of treatment developed HIV over that time period. So methadone is a very dramatic HIV prevention among heroin injectors. So knowing that, we tried to get Ukraine in early 2004 to begin a process of scaling up treatment to a level that would impact HIV rates, right? So in 2010, there were 360,000 people with HIV. It was a concentrated epidemic among young people. What happens? Well, unfortunately, uh, this graph shows the wrong thing you'd want to see. So early on, right, this is just about 100% contribution in percent of the risks. So early on, sexual risk is less prevalent. Why? What's the concentrated epidemic among people who inject drugs? Well, what's happening over time? Well, buprenorphine starts right about here in 2004 to 2005. 2008, methadone starts. And there's a scattering of syringe exchange throughout this time period, but too small to do anything. But you see, here's 2005. As time's going on, what's happening? Well, people who inject drugs don't do large-scale surveys before sexual activity, right? You need money for drugs, so you don't say, I'm sorry, could you fill this application out? I don't want to have sex with you. I don't want your money. If you're planning to have sex with other people and cause a generalized epidemic. They don't do that. I've been to Ukraine. They don't do that. I can promise, right? So what happens? Well, we see that over time, we now have a generalized epidemic. This is the thing that always happens without actually addressing the problem, the problem gets worse, right? which is an absolute travesty. Some of this was related to the fact that methadone has traditionally been looked at, instead of primary prevention, as secondary prevention, right? which is once you have HIV, now I think you really need some treatment. Once you have hepatitis C, we really should do something about this. That's secondary prevention. You've already got it. Maybe I can prevent you from giving it to somebody else. Right? But what we really need to be thinking about is primary prevention. 
right? Methadone's $54 a year to treat somebody at 100 milligrams a day. $54. That's what we pay in Tanzania. I have to pay about 100 bucks in Connecticut, but Connecticut's just, for no reason, very expensive, right? But still, 100 bucks. That's a lot cheaper than HIV therapy, hep C therapy, anything else. So this was estimates of, uh, you know, if you don't do anything or if you do something, not surprisingly, if you don't do anything in Ukraine, it gets worse. If you do lots of things, right, expand HIV therapy, expand methadone, expand uh, needle and syringe programs, do wide-scale HIV testing, you could actually, even this late in the game, start to see some benefit. But unfortunately, what happened? Well, the Russian Federation decided to invade, and the Russian Federation... Uh, is one of those countries that, although they have a million HIV-infected drug users, denies access to people who use drugs. Uh, you can't get HIV therapy if you're a drug addict, right? Because you're a bad person anyway, and you should die, is basically the idea. If we don't retain people in treatment, right? So it's great if we get people on treatment, they reduce their behaviors. But if we don't retain people in treatment, what happens, right? Well, they're going to go back to the behaviors that they had beforehand. Right, which is something that's very important for us to understand. It's very hard to forget the heroin high. You don't ride your bicycle every day, but you don't remember. You don't forget how to ride a bicycle. The person who's used heroin will never forget how heroin feels. Right. So, if you get someone into treatment for a very short period of time, and 20 years of their life have been a heroin addict, but oh, hey, I've been doing great, doc, for four weeks. Can't I get off the methadone? Yeah, you can get off the methadone. But 82% of the people like that are going to be back to injecting in a year, right? Because you haven't changed your behaviors. You haven't changed fundamentally what's going on in the person's life. Well, so because I'm in HIV prevention, right, I'm a big fan of methadone over buprenorphine over naltrexone. And that's largely due to retention, right? So we just published a paper that came out in JAGE this year that was a randomized controlled trial and it looked at buprenorphine or methadone retention. And we found that people in methadone were retained longer. And this is one of the reasons that we were using methadone in Tanzania. It's cheaper, and it retains people in treatment longer. And those are the two things that we need to have large-scale interventions. Because this is a numbers game. Right? We know it works. We just have to do it to a scale that makes a difference. If you don't do it to scale, we see what happened in Ukraine. If you do it to scale, this is what happened in Taiwan. So in Taiwan... Right, you see in the middle area here, these are criminal arrestees for heroin in red and for stimulants in blue. And here comes HIV, right? dramatically increasing. People realize, oh my goodness, something's going on. We need to do something about it. So what do we do? We start methadone, we start syringe exchange, and we scale it up massively. 14,000 people here in treatment, right? right here when there were what, 220 cases at its peak. What happens when you see this dramatic increase? HIV vanishes among the injection drug users. So if we do things to scale, those things actually have an impact. So I just want to talk a couple things about uh, drug users who have an infectious disease who are struggling with treatment. And one of the things, obviously, that you're dealing with is, you know, uh, drug users often <coughs> lack access to treatment. And that's for lots of things, right? So it's um, both for the HIV and non-HIV related illnesses, 
they have lack of access. Some of that's because they're not coming into treatment. They feel condemned. Some of that's they're coming in, but people don't feel comfortable prescribing medications for them. Some people are worried about resistance. Some people are worried about all kinds of different things. All right, this is old data, but just reminds me, uh, this is from Hopkins, that if we looked at people who inject drugs, their virologic response was less than everyone else. Right? This was often quoted as, well, see, drug users don't take their medicine. But some of the problem here was actually drug users aren't prescribed medicine. So some of the generalizations about adherence, which I think are really important as we think about HIV and hep C therapy, right? So we do worry about non-adherence and biologic failure. People worry about resistance, right? We know that sociodemographics do not predict adherence. There are a lot of physicians with HIV who don't take their medications very well, right? So it's not, we, we shouldn't look at it and say, oh, you're poor and educated, therefore you're not adherent, right? The Bush administration was famous for that in Africa, right? Oh, you don't have watches, you can't tell time, you won't take HIV therapy appropriately, right? I have many more problems with HIV adherence of my patients in New Haven, Connecticut, than I do in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, who are heroin addicts. Both are heroin addicts. So when we think about adherence, the best predictor of adherence is past adherence. And physicians are really horrible about predicting so if we look at the past, right, so I think this is important. So in the past, we often deny treatment until drug use ceases, And this was based upon the idea uh, that drug addiction is a moral failing as opposed to a medical illness. And I hope that I've tried to convince you today that it's a medical illness. So we know that HIV patients with other medical illness have not been denied treatment, right? So if you have uh, <coughs> HIV and TB, that's actually a priority issue, right? If you have HIV and TB, we should be getting you in TB treatment and HIV therapy as quickly as possible. Right? And although addiction is a disease that winds up propagating HIV rapidly, oftentimes uh, drug users are not considered as people who should get access to HIV therapy. And this is actually something that we've been arguing at UNAIDS for a while, which is that drug users should be prioritized in the treatment as prevention model systems because what? They disseminate HIV on a very rapid scale and can destabilize epidemics very quickly. So physicians often try to predict adherence. Um, even though all the data suggests that we're poor predictors of adherence, we still like to do that because I think physicians, uh, such as myself, often feel like we do, uh, we're exceptions to the rule. Um, every medical provider I know at policymakers can always point to that one poorly adherent patient. Um, we shouldn't do that, you know, you should never actually base policy on the N of one, right? That's not good science, that's not good policy. It should be on the evidence. So this is a study that uh, Evan Wooden colleagues at, uh, in Vancouver did. It looked at 1,191 people on HIV therapy, and it followed them forward time. And so they were looking at uh, HIV resistance, and they found that 25% of the cohort in the first 30 months of treatment had resistance. And this was in people who injected drugs, and people who are not injecting drugs. And so one of their take-home messages from this was, you know, it's just really hard to take HIV therapy. But we oftentimes, um, in many ways, pick on the drug user because the drug user is really someone I think that's often easy to pick on. So we've been arguing more and more that the people who inject drugs should likely have access to HIV therapy earlier because we know that if they're taking HIV therapy and we drive their viral load down, we can help prevent transmission. 
So it's another way in the arsenal to try and impact the HIV epidemic among drug users. So when we think about principles of care for drug users, we want care to be accessible, we want it to be comprehensive, it needs to be offered at a level that the patient can utilize, and we need to do outreach in, into the community. So I'm just going to zip through this very quickly. There are several models of care. There are separate services, co-located and integrated. When we think about separate services that's self-explanatory, care is divided up into lots of different places. Right? So you go over to clinic A and you get your TB medicine. You go over to clinic B and you get your methadone. You go to clinic C and you get your HIV therapy. And if you're in Kiev, that's three different sides of the city because you put those clinics on the outskirts of the city because we don't want diseased people in the city. And so you spend your whole day going clinic to clinic. Right? And if you've got a mother with children, right, you can't bring your kids to the clinic, you have no child care, so guess what? You're not going to be in treatment. What about co-locating services? This is something that we've tried to do in different countries. It's a little bit, it's kind of a model you have to go with in former Soviet countries where there are very siloed levels of care. If you can co-locate services, it tends to be a miracle of God, where you've got the TB docs, right? TB physicians can only prescribe TB meds, HIV docs can only prescribe HIV meds, and the narcologist can only prescribe the methadone. And not allowed to prescribe anyone else's drugs. And the TB docs are divided on inpatient and outpatient TB docs. So it becomes very complicated, but co-location is something that we often do in the States. We'll co-locate a psychiatrist in the HIV clinic to deal with mental health issues. Or we'll put the hep C doc in the methadone clinic to try and address hep C issues. Right. So this has been going on for a very long time. Um, I don't know why it advanced on its own. So this has been done in multiple issues. It was really done originally with... Uh, TB therapy, and then uh, LTBI treatment with INH and methadone clinics in the early 80s. That's been shown over and over and over again to be an effective way to improve treatment. Integrating treatment is kind of what we often try to strive for, especially in resource-limited countries where, as in Tanzania, I know all of the psychiatrists in Tanzania, right? Not because I travel a lot in Tanzania, because there's just not a lot of psychiatrists. So we rely upon the dissemination of information. So what are we doing in Tanzania? We're teaching the psychiatrists who run the methadone program how to do HIV-TB treatment because that's the only way we're going to have access to these services because the HIV physicians, again, they're not enough of them either, and they're not able to take away from their busy clinics to come to the methadone clinic system to provide care. So we want to make sure that uh, effective treatment is defined by careful assessment, education of the patient, and creative implementation. Drug users require creativity if we're to successfully uh, intervene and help them. So one of the ways that we help with medication administration is through structural supports, and I'm going to mention a structural support in Tanzania. So in Tanzania, uh, this looks like a bottle of water, but it's methadone, right? Methadone, when it dissolves, is clear and colorless. There's a huge epidemic of drug use in Africa, 1.7 million heroin addicts estimated in Africa with over half a million in East Africa. Um, I was in Africa in August for the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, and you would not believe the amount of heroin that is trafficked daily through East Africa. It is hundreds of kilos. If, they, if the Combined Maritime Force stops a boat, that one boat may have 500 kilos of heroin, 200 kilos. Right? And because uh, they don't arrest the pirates who are doing this, they just take the heroin, throw it over into the Indian Ocean, let the guys go, and they turn around and go back to Pakistan and get more heroin. 
HIV is a huge issue in this uh, community, as you can imagine, right? So data here among men, 28% of men are HIV infected, 64% of the women are HIV infected. Right? This is among people who inject drugs in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Why this big difference between men and women? Well, it's the sex trade. So this is where women come and have sex, right? You can see there's a little stall over there to the right. And this is just a little open area. They'll drape a sheet. Cardboard is there for people to lay on. And there's a lot of unprotected anal sex that happens. Why? Because you can't get pregnant that way. And the men are not going to wear condoms. And women are having sex. Why? For drugs, right? I mentioned it was 64% in the most recent seroprevalence survey. 71% of women are already HIV infected. So what did we do? We started a methadone program in Dar es Salaam. Uh, and methadone, interestingly enough, tends to be spelled like methadone in just about every language, including Russian. So this is patient number one who started methadone in 2011. You wouldn't actually recognize him if he was here today. He looks completely different. He's gained a lot of weight, has a job, is feeling fantastic. Right? And we do have his permission to show this picture. This was actually published in the New York Times, right? so which he was very excited about. We're also worried about TB. TB is a huge global issue, and we have huge TB issues uh, in the clinic. You notice that in Tanzania, it's 177 per 100,000. In the methadone clinic, it's 4,000 per 100,000. If you know the South African mines are 8,000 per 100,000. So the TB rates are astronomical. We had to change the entire way the clinic was structured and flow as we realized how high the TB rates were. Okay. Because what we were worried about, we're worried now also that the staff's going to get TB, and we can't afford to replace the staff either, right? The first patient who died, patient number seven, died of overwhelming HIV TB co-infection. So one of the things that we do, right? Well, we can give HIV therapy with the methadone. We can give TB treatment with the methadone. And by doing that, we're able to get people access to treatment. Why? Well, because initially, no one would treat our patients. Oh, drug addicts don't take their HIV therapy. Drug addicts don't take TB therapy. And the HIV TB worlds in Tanzania would not allow access to treatment. So what did we have to say? Look, they come seven days a week to the clinic. We'll give them their medicine. We'll vouch for the patients. And when we did that, they were willing to give TB treatment. So this is a retrospective review that we did. We looked at the first 638 patients that came through and looked for anybody that had been given first-line TB treatment. We found that 51 patients had received a standard first-line treatment, mean age 34. And 30 out of 51 or 59% had finished their TB treatment with 13 or 25% still in treatment. Only three people defaulted and five had died, all of whom were HIV co-infected. Right? We know the mortality is higher in HIV uh, co-infected with TB. Interestingly enough, 75% were HIV co-infected. Uh, sorry, 38 uh, were co-infected. And of those 38 people, 84% were in HIV therapy. I mentioned that you're supposed to get HIV therapy rapidly on board in people who have TB. And by being in a methadone clinic that was very sensitive to HIV TB, that screened people and providing people treatment, people were very uh, rapidly able to get access to treatment. I also wanted to mention that I think it's quite remarkable that only three people defaulted, right? So when you think about TB treatment worldwide, right, it's often that greater than 5% uh, are defaulting from TB treatment. So it's quite remarkable. And what is that? That's methadone. Methadone is a very strong adherence measure. People will come back from methadone. Gender violence is also a big issue in Tanzania. It's a big issue, I'm sure, in New Hampshire. It's always a big issue where drug users are concerned because <coughs> drug users 
place themselves in a position of risk, and by doing that, are often victimized. Um, I was working with some sex workers on some HIV prevention-related issues, and one of the sex workers was telling me about a case in Chicago of a sex worker who was raped. And the judge, a female judge, threw the case out of court because she considered it theft of services and not sexual assault. Right? So drug users are often victimized not just by the system, right, or not just by the people who are soliciting services, but by the system that's designed to protect them. So I think it becomes really important for us to understand that we need to organize services around what the HIV-infected drug user uh, needs. That we really need to get those drug users involved in their treatment. Drug users are not stupid. Right? Drug users have a problem. Right? And so we need to get them engaged. And we need to organize services in an array that's fitting that need. Right? When we organize it around them, they're going to come, they're going to access treatment, and they're going to benefit from it. There are a lot of innovative ways to get HIV therapy to people who inject drugs. And now with the new hep C treatments that are all oral, 12 weeks or less, it's similarly important for us to find ways to deliver treatment to our patients in a way that they can succeed. So I want to just tell you very quickly about a couple pharmacological treatments that you can do in your uh, practice with people who inject drugs. And then uh, if we have some time, we'll, we'll have some questions. So first, methamphetamines. Don't ever try them at home, right? Methamphetamines are really bad. Um, as stimulants, they can really damage the brain, especially in people who uh, have HIV. One of the issues that we worry about in the chronic use is that there's reduced motor skills and can be uh, even impaired uh, verbal learning. If we take a look here at dopamine transporters and methamphetamine abusers, you see the normal control above, and you see the methamphetamine user below. And you can see um, that there's this uh, obvious uh, loss of dopamine transporters and the abusers, and they have slower motor tasks and slower memory tasks. Now, in HIV-infected methamphetamine users, we believe that these changes may be permanent. Right? And, uh, we know that because HIV is also a neurotropic virus, and this seems to be true in cohort studies that have been done on the West Coast, which has lots of HIV-infected methamphetamine users. What's the big problem with this? Well, a lot of our treatments for methamphetamine addiction require cognition, right? cognitive behavioral therapy. And so if your memory is going due to drug use, it becomes harder for you to remember the treatment that we're trying to teach you. Uh, some HIV-specific methamphetamine effects. So I find it very interesting that uh, it increases HIV replication and expression of CCR5 and macrophages, um, things that also uh, cocaine similarly does. appears that uh, HIV really likes stimulants. Some of the medical treatments that have been tried are modafinil. Um, it's an area of ongoing research. This is this idea of stimulant um, maintenance, which has had some mixed results. Bupropion, uh, there was one small study that looked pretty good, but uh, a larger scale study has not been as effective. This was effective in mild methamphetamine users. It's unclear how one defines mild user, and it was certainly not defined in the paper. Now, Trexone has been used to look at every form of addiction, um, eating too much, gambling, alcohol, you name it. The basic idea is naltrexone blocks the mu opioid receptor. And so lots of things that are pleasurable wind up somehow cross-talking with the opiate receptor. And so it's felt that if you block the, do uh, the opiate receptor, it will blunt some of the euphoria associated with whatever addiction. It's fantastic in theory. 
um, may work in amphetamine users in Eastern Europe, but does not appear to be working with methamphetamines. Methamphetamines are more potent than amphetamines. Some people have been advocating for methylphenidate or dextroamphetamine maintenance. Uh, it's unclear if this is a good idea, especially in HIV-infected people, when we're concerned that stimulant use may be causing brain damage, may not be a good idea to necessarily be doing that in people uh, who were concerned could have that. For cocaine, we actually have fantastic treatment, right? Disulfiram. So uh, cocaine's a fascinating compound. Cocaine hydrochloride is heat labile, but you mix it up as a base and it becomes heat stable and you have crack. Cocaine binds uh, similarly in the nucleus accumbens like other drugs and releases very rapidly uh, uh, the dopamine burst. Injecting heroin, high in six seconds. Smoking crack, high in six seconds. Very potent, very fast. Cocaine similarly affects uh, lots of different aspects of HIV. One of the biggest issues we have is obviously the increase in uh, replication of the virus. <laughs> Bless you. Thank you. Sorry. No worries. Um, I think it's also very interesting that by enhancing HIV replication, it's also affecting other aspects of co-receptors like CCR5 similar to the methamphetamines. Um, we know that uh, drug use can worsen HIV consequences in the brain. So you see the HIV seronegative person on the far left, the HIV person in the middle, and then HIV plus the drug on the, on the right. I mentioned disulfiram is a great treatment for cocaine dependence. There's six randomized controlled trials that have shown that what disulfiram does the original thought was disulfiram will keep you from drinking alcohol. People who drink alcohol smoke crack, and that's what solves it. Subsequent studies have found that uh, disulfiram blocks dopamine beta-hydroxylase in the brain, slowly increasing dopamine in the brain. So it's doing in the brain what cocaine's doing, but much slower. And if you remember that first slide, Pets again way earlier, that uh, Noah Volkow did, you're taking that low dopamine brain and turning it into a high dopamine brain. The person who takes disulfiram and smokes cocaine has a dysphoric response. They don't like the way they feel. And so people tend to decrease their cocaine consumption. Lastly, naltrexone and alcohol. There are lots of treatments for uh, alcohol dependence, right? So there's naltrexone, acamprosate, and disulfiram. Don't worry about acamprosate and disulfiram. They're FDA-approved, but when randomized controlled trials, they're no better than placebo. Naltrexone is the medication that should be prescribed for alcohol dependence. All right. Now, you can't give naltrexone to someone on methadone or buprenorphine, because naltrexone is an opioid antagonist. So if you give naltrexone to a patient on methadone, that person's going to hunt you down and be quite upset with you. Right? But for the person who's not on an opioid, right, this is going to block that mu uh, um, opiate receptor. GABA, which is where alcohol crosstalks over, to cause a pleasurable reward is blunted. And people, even if they're actively drinking alcohol, will tend to drink less. Naltrexone comes with a big black box warning for hepatotoxicity, but it has been safely given in HIV hep C co-infected patients who are alcoholics, even with cirrhosis. You could give topiramate to that patient who's on methadone or buprenorphine. There are several studies that have shown that topiramate can be helpful. But um, again, these are very small studies, not well controlled. Uh, we do provide it for patients who are on methadone because we don't really have any other option. Um, but it's still considered investigational. And with that, I'm going to wrap up.
Um, if there are any questions that anyone has relative to kind of the neurobiology of addiction, some of what's been happening, kind of our examples of Ukraine and example of Tanzania, or on some of the pharmacological treatments that you could be using. Uh, you cannot prescribe methadone in your practice, but you could prescribe buprenorphine. Um, I'd be more than happy to entertain those questions now. So thank you very much. Yes, sir. Well, I thought about becoming a buprenorphine <coughs> uh, uh, prescriber. I wasn't sure it was worth the effort because we don't, I don't have that many patients. I'm not sure we have that many here that are actively objecting. Narcotics to it. Brian, anyone? If you're in our, our HIV population? Up here, yeah, not necessarily. Um, yeah. Just HIV? Yeah. No. So. But, but, but do, you, do you integrate that at Yale with uh, your yep. HIV clinics? Yeah, well, we have a lot of drug addicts in New Haven. Yeah. So uh, HIV was the leading cause of death among African-American men, 25 to 44 in the 1990s. And that was all heroin injection, basically. They all got it from, from heroin. So yeah, it's a very common issue where we are. Uh, a lot of the older uh, heroin users are now kind of tired of heroin and have moved on. And it's the newer generation that we're dealing with. Most of those do not have HIV, but have hepatitis C. So our largest population of people on buprenorphine or methadone are hepatitis C-infected individuals, and we're incorporating buprenorphine or methadone treatment with the new hep C treatments. Are you eight, but are your ID doctors buprenorphine prescribers? Some are. Yeah. Yep. Yes, sir. Um, you, had, you said you did a recent study on buprenorphine versus methadone. Yep. And um, people off. Why was methadone better um, in your study? And was the study done during the time period that you know, more injectable forms of buprenorphine was available or liquid forms? Yep, great question. So um, the study was actually conducted to look at hepatotoxicity in buprenorphine. It was requested by the FDA. So this was a secondary outcome, was looking at retention and treatment. What happened was that um, patients were having to follow into the structure of a methadone clinic to get their buprenorphine or their methadone. And we found that the buprenorphine patients were dropping out faster. And so the randomization of the study had to change to two to one just to get enough buprenorphine patients retained in treatment long enough in order to be valuable. So why is that? Well, part of it is because buprenorphine has a very high binding affinity, and you can walk off buprenorphine with very little side effects. I mean, there is a withdrawal syndrome, but it's the easiest thing to come off of, easier than heroin, easier than methadone. Methadone is the worst withdrawal that exists, right, for reasons that are unclear, but people will have persistent withdrawal for months if they just walk off, right? If it's tapered appropriately, it's fine. But if you just walk off. So let's say you use crack and you're on buprenorphine. Well, you start smoking crack for the weekend, you haven't had your buprenorphine, buprenorphine's getting out of your system, you don't feel any need to get back into treatment in the clinic. You're on the methadone program, you start smoking crack, yeah, three days into that, you're, you're hurting. You're hurting. I need to go back, I need to get my methadone. So a lot of what makes methadone better in adherence is whatever the pharmacological property is that causes a more severe withdrawal syndrome, that withdrawal pulls people back into treatment and keeps them in treatment longer. So, so your, your measure was keeping someone in treatment, but yep. do you know what proportion of those buprenorphine patients actually stopped using? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so for the, for the people, so if you look at the people who were retained in treatment, so the people that we can measure through the system, right? 
If you got on buprenorphine and stayed on buprenorphine, you did as well as a methadone patient. Absolutely. Right? I don't know what happened to the people that dropped off and disappeared. We don't know what happened to them. The presumption is that they relapsed, but I don't know that. Right? But if you got on treatment and did well on treatment, it didn't matter. Buprenorphine and methadone were equal as far as success relative to heroin use. Yep. So good question. These are first responders. So, it's available, right? Not, not uh, as broadly distributed. <coughs> so it, yes. So it's it's very. Um, so there is legislation in the state of Connecticut that allows a physician to prescribe uh, naloxone for heroin overdose. Um, it's something that is publicized. It's something that's encouraged. We want first responders to have it. Um, it's Connecticut's a really a collection of a lot of small towns. And so uh, different jurisdictions may or may not adopt it. It's very hard to get everybody in the state to do anything. One of the biggest problems that we have is actually around our Department of Social Services and Medicaid, right? So I can prescribe naloxone to the person in front of me for his own use. But let's say a parent wants it, or say a wife wants it for her husband. Well, if I write the prescription for her and she fills it with her insurance, and I know that she's going to use it on her husband, that's insurance fraud. And so that's been very difficult for us to wrestle with. Right? So I, could, I, I run a huge health center. I'm responsible for 35, 40,000 patients. I could write a whole lot of naloxone tomorrow, but DSS is going to come knocking on my door saying, what? Why are you like, putting all this naloxone? Hmm? You go apply for a job or something right. like that. Right. Exactly right. So that's, we've been, I've been kind of putting pressure on the Department of Public Health and the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services in Connecticut to lean on DSS to say, look, you know, I, you know, it's one thing for me as an individual prescriber to do this. I probably wouldn't get caught. But once I make this as health policy in a large FQHC and I have, you know, 80 people start writing prescriptions for this, I'm going to pop up on someone's radar. And um, I used to do prison health care. I don't want to go visit the prison anymore. Yes, you know, these things are available as sprays, so you can carry the first responders can carry them. In. First responders can carry them in Connecticut the if they're willing to do it. And, and everybody will have them. And um, the argument is, well, now there's going to be promiscuous behavior. Yeah, so that, I know that's a fascinating fear. Um, so it's the same fear that if we make condoms available, people will now suddenly discover sex, right? So um, it's the reverse. It's the same reason when we used to get in trouble going into a neighborhood in New Haven, and the community came on the bus and said, you know, you guys brought the drug addicts here. And we said, no, we're actually here because we mapped the drug addicts to this neighborhood. They came first. We follow the drug users. We don't bring them, right? So... Um, Yes, there's a lot of concern. There's been things in the press that if we make naloxone available, what will happen is that drug users will use naloxone so that they can get a better high relative to the heroin. The problem with that is the physiology, right? So if you've ever given naloxone to someone, it rapidly kicks out all of the opiates out of the brain. And so what you end up having is precipitated opiate withdrawal. So if you were ever to ask a heroin addict, 
Would you like to go into florid opiate withdrawal and then use heroin? They would all look at you like, you, what are you talking about? Right? Because if I dig a ditch and I give you heroin, I'll get you back to surface level, but you're not getting high. Drug users want to feel fantastic. They don't want to feel any form of suffering. Right? So the bigger issue we have, and I was, this guy in Britain was joking that his big issue is that when he gives naloxone, he has to jump back several feet so when that person comes out of it and starts swinging and is angry, that he doesn't get hit. Right? So drug users don't tend to increase their risk. Um, that has not been formally studied, but uh, is not a concern that I have. But it's an important question to be asked because I mean a lot of policymakers have been talking about that. Right. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely, great question. So, um, methadone. So, steady state of methadone takes three to five days. So, there are several stages in methadone. Initially, is the induction, where you're trying to get it so that the person wakes up and they're not in floored withdrawal. So, in uh, street level heroin in Connecticut, it's about 95% pure, right? So, uh, we have to quickly get you up, typically to about 60 milligrams, just so you don't wake up sick. Now, once we can, so we can go up five a day. We'll start you at 30. The federal law is very um, tense around. You can only give 30 milligrams as your initial dose. You can give 10 more several hours later for a maximum of 40 on your first day. But the federal government has regulated that. After that, you can go up, we'll go up, say, five a day to get you to the 60. After that, it's every three to five days we can go up. And you tend to go up between five and 10 milligrams. And so we're trying to then... You could say we're dialing the volume up quickly, and then it's a slower grade up to find that maintenance dose. Now, how do we determine we're at the right dose? It's really around behavior, right? So we can monitor urine toxicology to see if the person stopped using heroin. If they're still using heroin on top of the methadone, we haven't given them enough methadone. Um, the other issue is around behaviors in group, individual therapy, sitting in the lobby. We watch people. If you're sitting in the lobby and you're dozing off an hour into your methadone, You've got too much methadone or you've got another drug on board. So we can say, come in and give you urine tox. You've got Xanax in your system or something like that. Now I'm worried. And now I need to decrease your methadone dose, right, because I'm worried about overdose. But the appropriately dosed methadone would be somebody who could be any one of you, who would be normal functioning. You wouldn't be able to tell that the person's on methadone maintenance. So the person who's nodding out, you know, that's the person who is either getting too much methadone or has ingested another sedating drug. In our neck of the woods, that's Xanax and Klonopin. Don't ever prescribe Xanax, please, or Klonopin, unless you're a psychiatrist. They're very addictive, very abusable drugs. Half a milligram of Xanax is 10 milligrams of Valium equals 25 milligrams of Livium. Very, very potent, very reinforcing. It's like a shot of vodka. Very, very addictive. Our patients love them. Our patients love it because it's incredibly calming, right? Uh, and you don't get a hangover. So, I mean, patients in Connecticut, right, used to smoke crack and then drink vodka to help with the shakes. Nobody does it anymore, right? Because you can get pancreatitis, you throw up, oh, it's horrible. You just take two Xanax, right? you can smoke crack, and it's great. I'm not recommending that. I don't mean great, is it? Go home and try this. But Xanax is our biggest street drug outside of heroin. It's a big, big problem. And our patients love to come. The other problem with all benzodiazepines is they cause enterograde amnesia. So from the time now going forward, 
you begin to forget things. So it becomes very difficult for therapy. So if you're trying to help someone process trauma or do other things, they're not going to remember very well the techniques that you're trying to teach them because they uncoupled their memory with the benzodiazepine. They'll make it up, right? They'll fill in things. But someone who's on chronically on Xanax or Klonopin, there's no tolerance to the amnesia, uh, will oftentimes make things up. So people who are abusing those, we often have to have them write things down because they won't remember them. But they're very creative in the stories that they tell. They would. Other questions at all? Well, thank you very much. If you can help people get far enough along, uh, sustained recovery is possible. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Just realize that the evaluation form question.